welcome you all to uh, the dinner this evening and the talk we'll have by Janet Yellen, Federal Reserve Bank President of San Francisco. Um, it's been a wonderful conference day. Um, I hope those who attended the conference were as excited about it as I am. Um, I think it was just a wonderful exchange of academics and policymakers, and I think epitomizes what we're trying to do here at the Santa Cruz Center for International Economics. My name is Michael Hutchison. I'm the Dean of Social Sciences and a professor of economics, but also a member of the Santa Cruz Center for International Economics. We started it nine years ago in conjunction with our doctoral program, which is focused international economics here at UCSC. And over the last nine years, it's really developed into just a marvel, marvelous institution where we've had synergies with the Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco, other academic institutions, and of course within UC Santa Cruz itself. We're very proud of our students and our research that we do here and our collaborations. Um, and tonight is a special event for us, and I would like to introduce Professor Carl Walsh, who's the Vice Provost on campus and uh, has been a cherished colleague for 18 years with me here at Santa Cruz. Thank you, Carl. Well, thank you, Michael. It is, uh, we were just speculating or talking earlier about how long Michael and I have been on the faculty here and starting to get scary. I remember I, when I, it doesn't seem that long ago when I came here and there were all these old faculty who had been here, you know, 15 or 20 years, and now I'm one of them. But first of all, I'd like to uh, thank the uh, delegation of the European Commission in uh, Washington, D.C. for fund providing the funding for this conference. Um, we greatly appreciate it, and we certainly enjoy the opportunity to uh, be able to put on this conference. I'd also like to point out that it was a collaborative venture, uh, and the organizing committee consisted of um, uh, several of my colleagues here at uh, the University of California at Santa Cruz, including Michael Hutchison, Joshua Eisenman, Mike Dooley, Federico Ravenna, um, but also with the assistance of Ru Ruven Glick from the San Francisco Fed and Jurgen von Hagen from uh, Bonn University. Uh, and so we really appreciate the collaborative venture and the uh, efforts that all the organizers put into um, putting together what I, I hope you all agree was a really great uh, day of papers, presentations, and discussions. Uh, well, it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce tonight's uh, speaker, Janet Yellen. Uh, Janet has had an outstanding career as an academic, as a policy economist, and as a policy decision maker. As an academic, uh, Janet served on the faculties of Harvard, the London School of uh, Economics and Political Science, and since 1980, she's been a professor in the Haas School of Business at, uh, um, I don't know, some, uh, one of the other UC campuses somewhere. <laughs> Um, she's widely known for her work on unemployment, and she's a member of the American Academies of Arts and Sciences. As a policy economist, Janet has been an economist with the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. Uh, she was chair of President Clinton's Council of Economic Advisors in those, as Michael pointed out in the panel today, those uh, halcyon days of budget surpluses, low inflation, and strong economic growth. Uh, and at the same time, she was also chair of the Economic Policy Committee of the OECD. As a monetary policy decision maker, Janet served as a member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve in the mid-1980s, again, a period of very uh, uh, satisfactory uh, policy by the Federal Reserve. Uh, 
And since January of 2004, she's been president and CEO of the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank. In that role, she is currently a voting member of the FOMC, the policy-making committee of the Federal Reserve. Uh, this background of accomplishments makes Janet ideally placed to offer uh, to us her insights about the role of monetary policy in a uh, global environment. Please join me, join me in welcoming Janet. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Carl. I really appreciate that lovely uh, introduction. And I want to begin by saying thank you. I think this has been a terrific day uh, of interesting and provocative presentations. And Carl, thanks to you and to all the organizers uh, of this conference. Um, Carl was nice enough to give me essentially carte blanche uh, with respect to choice of topics this evening. And so I thought I would use this opportunity to discuss the issue of how globalization is affecting inflation and uh, what the implications are for monetary policy. There seems these days to be a building chorus of voices claiming that increasing globalization coupled with technology has brought us smack in the middle of a new age an age where physical and political boundaries are melting, where information, labor, and capital can move with ease, and where no one even blinks at the fact that the call center operator trying to solve a computer glitch in Topeka is actually sitting in a cubicle in Bangalore. From the monetary policy perspective, this, uh, I'll call it new view, raises some serious questions. The first is whether globalization, and here I mean specifically increased global capacity, has been a disinflationary force in the U.S. economy. This is a point on which Alan Greenspan has recently weighed in. Uh, in congressional testimony last year, he cited the massive new army of workers that's become available to engage in the world's markets. Some 100 million plus from the former Soviet bloc, some 750 million from China, and of course the growing powerhouse of talent that India's workers represent. A second question is whether globalization has in some way altered the dynamics of inflation, namely the linkages between current inflation, lagged inflation, domestic unemployment, and supply shocks that are summarized by the Phillips curve. According to the proponents of this new view, globalization has weakened the traditional link between domestic resource utilization and inflation. With prices increasingly setting global markets, they argue that firms have less room to pass on higher costs. And uh, as The Economist recently put it, uh, they said, this makes a nonsense of traditional economic models of inflation, which virtually ignore globalization. Well, there is some new view fans that would go even further, arguing that Slack matters to inflation, but the slack that matters isn't domestic slack, 
it's global slack. So my objective in these remarks is to touch on some conceptually distinct channels through which globalization might affect the process of inflation in the United States. I'll try to assess some empirical evidence bearing on the strength of these linkages and then reflect a bit on the implications for monetary policy. I do actually have one other objective, and that is to keep this talk within some reasonable limits, considering both the late hour and also my interest in hearing uh, your comments and maybe a couple of questions. So I'll be compressing a bit the material that's more fully developed um, in the version of this talk that will be posted on our website. Well, to preview my conclusions, some very tentative evidence supports the proposition that increasing global capacity on balance has held inflation down over the last decade. But the magnitude of the dampening effect appears to be modest. And exchange rate fluctuations, possibly related to other shocks, have played a significant role. I believe there's also evidence that the price, price Phillips curve has become flatter, and that's a phenomenon that may be related to globalization. With respect to monetary policy, I find nothing, either in theory or the existing empirical evidence, to overturn the conclusion that a country like the United States, operating under a flexible exchange rate regime, can ultimately achieve the inflation target of its choice. Although, that said, I believe global factors may impact the level of inflation in the medium term, as well as inflation dynamics, and this may require some recalibration of policy responses. Well, let me start with a quick spin through some of the channels by which I think globalization can affect the level of inflation and also the inflation process. But I want to preface it with a caveat. In some cases, at least, the channels that I'm going to mention represent partial effects that may have repercussions on other variables like the exchange rate in a fully specified model. And I think that movements in these other variables like the exchange rate may materially affect one's views on the impacts of globalization. And I'm going to come back to this consideration when I assess the interpretation of the empirical results in the literature. Well, now to channels. The first channel is the most obvious one, and that is the direct effect of the reductions in the prices of imported goods and services that may be caused by globalization and, uh, of course, are included in the indices of consumer prices that central banks commonly target. But I think import prices could also have various indirect impacts on inflation. One linkage might operate through the labor market if nominal wage demands are influenced by the prices of imported goods. And the argument here is simply that since a decline in the price of imports raises the real reward to work, um, namely the purchasing power of a given nominal wage, it could reduce workers' demands for nominal wage increases. Another indirect channel 
reflects the possibility that lower import prices may constrain the pricing power of domestic producers of competing products. Increasing, increased global competition may in effect have made the demand curve facing American producers more price elastic, resulting in larger feedbacks from lower import prices into core inflation. And this is a point that the new view emphasizes. In addition, this type of competitive constraint on pricing power could affect, I think, other parameters of the Phillips curve, and in a couple of ways. First, when lower domestic unemployment leads to higher wage demands, firms may not be able to pass that through, uh, their higher costs through, but instead be forced to absorb them in their markups. And the consequence would be that a Phillips curve that expresses inflation as a function of slack, lagged inflation, and other variables, the so-called price-price Phillips curve, would become flatter. We would see a smaller response of inflation to measures of slack. And this is also a possibility that the so-called new view emphasizes. It's also possible that globalization could reduce the sensitivity of domestic wages to changes in domestic labor market slack. In other words, it could make the wage price Phillips curve flatter. And what I'm thinking of is that um, globalization could conceivably have enhanced firms' opportunities to substitute imports for domestic output or possibly firms might be able to shift production more easily from plants in the U.S., say, to those in lower-cost countries. And if that's happened, firms might become less willing to grant wage increases that would impair their cost competitiveness, even in the face of tight domestic labor markets. That type of substitution effectively increases the degree of competition between domestic and foreign workers. And you could even take this to a limit and uh, imagine in a case in which such substitution would, in effect, create a single global labor market. In other words, it could be that global and not domestic labor market slack is what's relevant to U.S. wages and inflation. Now, a distinct but a related possibility is that glo a globalized labor market may undermine the bargaining power of U.S. workers, especially less skilled workers, could make them more fearful of job loss, and thus could lower their wage demands, holding inflation down. And that might show up as a downward shift in the Phillips curve, something similar to the impact of more rapid productivity growth we saw in the second half of the 1990s. Alternatively, of course, a globalized labor market coupled with technological change may simultaneously raise the bargaining power of many skilled workers, having exactly the opposite effects on the Phillips curve. Well, 
the final linkage from globalization to inflation that I'll note before turning to empirical evidence pertains to productivity. There are some people who've argued that increased global competition has actually raised firms' incentives to innovate and their ability to achieve productivity improvements, and that's occurred in part through foreign outsourcing of intermediate goods, IT services, and back office functions. And, of course, faster productivity growth, as we saw during the boom of the 1990s, does tend to lower inflation unless or until workers' real wage aspirations rise to match those productivity gains. Well, with that sort of discussion of the theory or the channels, let me turn to some empirical evidence. Several recent studies employing different strategies have attempted to assess the magnitude of direct and indirect linkages between import prices and inflation for the United States and for other industrial countries. I think the results point to some impact on inflation, but for the most part, it appears to be limited, at least so far. For example, a recent IMF analysis calculates that non-oil import price reductions lowered U.S. inflation by an average of about a half percentage point a year uh, over the period from 1997 to 2005. And those results are in line with those from a recent Federal Reserve Board analysis. The IMF study also explored the indirect effects of globalization on U.S. inflation using sectoral data and found similar results. Now, in light of China's rapidly growing economy and exports, and the limited flexibility of its exchange rate against the dollar, proponents of this new view commonly single out that country as a source of global disinflationary pressures. But a Fed study that focused specifically on China's impact on U.S. consumer prices also found quite modest effects about a tenth of a percentage point per year on U.S. inflation since 1993. Now, really, it should not come as a great surprise that these studies find such small effects, because despite the growing trend toward integration, the U.S. is far, in fact very far, from being fully integrated with the rest of the world's markets. Still, Imports amount to only 16% of U.S. GDP, and many U.S. goods, of course, are not traded. And despite all those stories about U.S. firms hiring programmers in Hyderabad and typesetters in Beijing, they do still have to buy American when it comes to a host of other services and trades. And since these non-traded goods and services still represent the large majority of domestic consumption, and since they're not directly affected by foreign price developments, at least to me it makes sense that foreign price developments would have a relatively small effect on domestic inflation. Moreover, the evidence of small foreign effects that I've discussed, 
I think may actually overstate the true effects of globalization, and the reason to my mind has to do with exchange rate adjustments. I suppose it seems obvious that uh, if low-wage countries like China and India have growing capacity to supply labor-intensive goods to global markets, well, that would produce a persistent downward trend in the dollar prices of U.S. imports. But the dollar prices of imported goods reflect not only the selling prices of these goods in foreign currencies, but also exchange rate movements. And as this audience well knows, in many theoretical models of an open economy with flexible exchange rates, changes in the foreign currency prices do tend to be offset by movements in the exchange rate uh, so that they have less or even no change at the end of the day on domestic import prices. In other words, in many models, a flexible exchange rate hypothetically shields a country from this direct effect of globalization operating through this import price channel. Furthermore, the fluctuations that we have observed in import prices and these are fluctuations which the Phillips curve studies I've discussed implicitly attribute to greater world capacity. Um, these fluctuations may actually have resulted from conceptually distinct causes, such as capital account shocks affecting global capital flows, something we spent much of the day discussing. For example, an appreciation of the dollar and a corresponding reduction in import prices is exactly what we would expect in the aftermath of a shock that widens the gap between desired foreign saving and investment. And that's the kind of shock that arguably occurred in the wake of the global financial crisis in 1997-98 and uh, is a consequence of Japan's problems, including its banking crisis or, uh, as we discussed today, an increase in the return to investment in the United States uh, could similarly have induced capital inflows that appreciated the dollar. And in fact, the board study I mentioned finds that movements in exchange rates have been at least as important as movements in foreign currency prices of imported goods in accounting for fluctuations in U.S. import prices. The impact of exchange rates on import prices also explains why the IMF study finds very large year-to-year -year variability in the impact of import prices on inflation. So according to their estimates, significant declines in non-oil import prices and largely due to the appreciation of the dollar held down U.S. inflation by about a percentage point during 1998 and 1999 that was following the Asian financial crisis, and then again by three-quarters of a percentage point during the 2001-2 global slowdown. Now, to my mind, those kinds of movements uh, in the dollar that accounted for those big movements in import prices are neither simply nor obviously related to the growing global capacity that's often cited by proponents of this new view. So to sum up this thread of the evidence, 
Several studies do support the proposition that increasing global capacity on balance has held inflation down over the last several years, though the size of the effect appears to be modest and exchange rates possibly related to other shocks have played a significant role. Now, let me turn to a little bit of evidence on inflation dynamics. Unfortunately, research bearing on some of the linkages and channels I mentioned earlier um, is scanty. But as I review the literature, it, it does appear that there is substantial empirical evidence supporting the New View conclusion that the price-price Phillips curve has flattened. And we see this both for the United States and also for other industrial countries. For example, a Fed study finds that the responsiveness of U.S. inflation to measures of domestic capacity has fallen by about a third since the mid-1980s. And the IMF study I mentioned a minute ago finds a similar result in its sample of eight advanced countries. I also want to mention a BIS study which attempts to sort out the relative importance of domestic and global capacity pressures. It does that by including both measures in Phillips curve equations for a sample of 16 countries. And it finds that a measure of world capacity is significant in explaining inflation and when included reduces the effect of domestic capacity on inflation. And I guess, taken at face value, this analysis implies that inflationary pressures could remain contained in countries where domestic resources are fully or more than fully employed as long as there is excess capacity at the, in the global economy. However, I would need to see more evidence to be convinced of this result. And uh, as a counter to that empirical result, uh, San Francisco Fed staff found that when the same measures of world capacity are included uh, in the Phillips curves that they use to forecast inflation, these measures are not significant. And the usual measures of domestic labor or product market slack retain their significance. In addition, our staff examined a wage price Phillips curve and found no change in the coefficient on the unemployment rate in recent years. In other words, this exercise suggests that domestic slack plays just about the same role in the inflation process as it always did, as it did previously. As I indicated in my discussion of possible linkages from globalization to U.S. inflation, this result also suggests that insofar as globalization has led to a flatter price-price Phillips curve, it's more likely to have done so through changes in firms' ability to mark up costs than through changes in the effects of domestic slack on wage growth. Well, let me stop there with evidence 
and now turn to the final portion of my remarks and um, do my best to attempt an answer uh, to the question, what implications does globalization have for the Fed's conduct of monetary policy? Since the focus of so much of the empirical work pertaining to globalization centers on import prices, I think it's logical to begin there. I think the policy implications of import price shocks are reasonably straightforward because whatever their cause, they seem to me to be akin to any other supply shock, uh, such as a change in the price of oil. And ever since the 1970s, such shocks have routinely been incorporated in the incorporated in the kinds of Phillips curves models that we and others use to forecast inflation. I believe the consensus among economists is that one-shot changes in the prices of imported commodities, oil or other commodities, impact inflation for a time, but not permanently, unless they touch off a change in inflation expectations, and that sets off a wage price spiral as in the 1970s. Well, since those dark days, the Fed has learned a great deal about the danger that such shocks can become embedded in inflation expectations and about the exigency of responding by affirming its commitment to price stability through deeds and words both. Indeed, I think the Fed has by now established such a strong, incredible record that the empirical evidence suggests there is actually now less spillover of import prices, including energy prices, into core inflation since the mid-1980s. Now, it is conceivable, of course, that forces associated with globalization might result in more persistent upward or downward pressures on import prices rather than a one-shot type shift. Such long-lasting shifts in the relative prices of price of imports would create a kind of tailwind for policymakers if, um, for example, rapid growth uh, in uh, global supply places prolonged and, uh, sorry, we create a tailwind if rapid growth in global supply places prolonged downward pressure on import prices. Or alternatively, we could see headwinds if uh, strong global growth instead were to produce chronic, long-lasting upward trend, let's say, in relative commodity prices. I think the possibility of prolonged downward pressure on import prices due to the integration of China and other emerging markets in the global economy, this is, uh, I presume, what Alan Greenspan and others have in mind when they describe global globalization as a disinflationary force. Well, I think the logic of the Phillips curve makes it apparent that this type of long-lasting shift in import prices would indeed require the Fed to adjust its monetary policy 
to keep overall inflation in the vicinity of its preferred target. So when there are headwinds, to combat those headwinds associated with chronically rising import prices, monetary policy would have to be tighter, and that would presumably entail for a sustained period greater slack in labor markets. In contrast, in the tailwind situation where there is uh, persistent falling import prices, lower slack in labor markets is required. And it's in that sense that I believe ongoing uh, negative shocks raise narrow the level of unemployment consistent with stable inflation, while ongoing positive supply shocks lower narrow. A continued and pronounced downward trend in relative import prices would really impact the U.S. inflation process in a manner uh, akin to the productivity speed-up in the 1990s, which I see as a prolonged positive supply shock from a Phillips curve perspective. More rapid productivity growth, which the U.S. still enjoys, enabled the Fed to leave unemployment at extraordinarily low levels for an extended period, while simultaneously bringing inflation down to levels consistent with price stability. So the productivity speed up and coupled during that period, the end of the 90s, with a marked reduction in import prices associated with the appreciation of the dollar did make the Fed's job a great deal easier. Now, as for the flattening of the price-price Phillips curve, which may or may not be due to globalization, I don't see that that's something that poses any obvious obstacles to the Fed's ability to achieve its dual objectives of price stability and full employment. Although a flatter Phillips curve could in a way complicate the Fed's job by making policy errors um, on the one hand easier to commit and on the other more costly to repair. What I'm thinking of here is that reduced sensitivity of inflation to domestic unemployment means that emerging inflationary pressures can take longer to become evident. They become more difficult to discern. And as a consequence, you could imagine the Fed might be tempted to let these, these pressures build, somehow taking comfort from the fact that there appear to be small or almost non-existent inflationary consequences. Of course, such comfort would be quite misplaced because reduced sensitivity of inflation to slack also raises the cost of restoring price stability once an inflation has unacceptably risen. That entails a higher sacrifice ratio. Now, so far, I've implicitly assumed that globalization in no way diminishes the Fed's ability to influence aggregate demand and thereby inflation, even with the growing integration of not just product and labor markets, but also capital markets. And to my mind, the critical principle here is that the Fed can conduct effective monetary policy with highly integrated global capital markets because we operate under a flexible exchange rate regime. And free of the obligation to defend a currency peg, 
uh, at least versus most countries, the Fed retains control over its monetary base. So since the U.S. is a large player in the global economy and in capital markets, I see U.S. monetary policy as typically working by impacting both interest rates and the value of the dollar. Repercussions of monetary policy on the dollar um, commonly occur simply because capital flows are sensitive to global interest rate differentials. So the transmission mechanism uh, for the United States uh, for monetary policy operates through both channels of influence, and those work in tandem to affect aggregate demand. Of course, in addition, the tendency of the dollar to appreciate in response to tighter monetary policy also creates a direct link to inflation via lower import prices. So to wrap this up, my main conclusion is that globalization has no impact on the Fed's ability to control inflation in the long run, but it may have an effect on wage price dynamics. And thus, it may call for some recalibration of monetary policy. Much as policymakers recalibrated in the latter half of the 1990s in response to the surge in productivity growth. As the globalization trend unfolds, I'm confident that the Fed will continue to find creative and constructive ways to respond. And as always, policymakers will turn to you, our colleagues in the profession, for uh, the very best in theory and evidence to guide, to guide us. So let me stop there. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about this topic. I'd be happy to take a couple of questions if you have time. <laughs> all right. Hit me with it. <laughs> are, are you at all concerned about the uncertainty about the Well, I am perplexed by the behavior of long rates and Mike, I mean I know you have one um, interesting possible hypothesis to uh, explain it. Um, I still regard the fact that long rates have remained as low as they have while short rates have risen so much as a kind of conundrum. And it does seem that we see this phenomenon both in nominal and in real rates. And it's suggestive of the idea that uh, the term premium has shrunk very substantially. Perhaps it's now widened a little bit. And um, there are a number of attempts, of course, to get at that, whether or not it's reduced macroeconomic volatility or um, other demands for long-term assets that are pushing that down. But I've definitely, I've definitely found it mysterious, been surprised, and think it's not yet fully explained. I'm going to ask a question. Um, one of the other developments that has gone on in the last few years that's associated and, and um, certainly related to the globalization and is something that 
as economists, we can sort of think of as the reduction of transactions costs and in the sort of lay popular uh, terminology, the flatness of the world that Thomas Friedman has uh, popularized. Um, but one of the things that um, is always sort of problematic in our underlying economic models of the Phillips curve is exactly why are prices sticky? And the costs associated with, with price changes, which is often sort of alluded to as kind of a story that underlines the Phillips curves, uh, those costs are clearly have been reduced by the innovations in information technologies. And so I wonder if that's uh, playing a role here in the evidence that the Phillips curve is changing over time that's separate from the globalization component, although clearly they're kind of uh, driven by similar factors. Well, I mean, that's a, an interesting thing to speculate about, and I certainly I agree with your starting point that transactions uh, costs have uh, diminished substantially. I mean, in, in the work that we've done that I mentioned, if you look at the linkages between wage inflation and unemployment, um, you know, we don't really see any change there. We did find it inter interesting to observe that while the Phillips curve, the price, there's less responsive price inflation these days to unemployment, both in the United States and it appears for most industrial countries from the IMF study and others. We don't at least see that uh, for the United States. But certainly it, it does seem as one looks at wage arrangements that um, many wages in many sectors of the economy and in many countries have become so have a more flexible performance-based variable pay um, component and appear to have more flexibility than they did once upon a time. But I wouldn't go so far as to say we still don't have sticky wages, at least according to my read. Any other uh, questions? Today uh, at the conference, we were speaking a great deal about global imbalances and the possibility, at least, that there would be a sharp correction in the value of the dollar downward. Uh, do you consider that uh, likely? And if so, if it were to occur, um, how would the Fed respond? Okay. I, I think I'm going to avoid one of, one of the first lessons that one is given as a Fed policymaker is not to talk about the dollar or to speculate on its potential uh, direction. I will leave that. You haven't, in, if we have a Treasury official present, that's their job, and I will turn over that job to them and avoid the speculation. But I, I mean, I thought the observations, I certainly, um, there were obviously a variety of points of view represented today, and I thought the discussion around that was very interesting. Um, in terms of Fed response to movements in the exchange rate, um, you know, in the one hand, the, well, how, the first thing would be, I suppose, to what extent does that show up, and it would be a supply shock, to what extent does it show up in import prices. But, you know, of course, we know from Linda Goldberg's work and others that there seems to be, or has been at least in the last number of years, less 
less impact of exchange rates on import prices than we had seen previously. So one linkage, um, of course, would be through would be through import prices. Um, does, does it have a direct inflationary impact? Um, the other linkage that the Fed always worries about or thinks about and factors into its analysis is the impact of exchange rates on net exports and aggregate demand. Um, so, I mean, both of these channels uh, potentially um, weigh in the same direction. Of course, you know, it's, it's complicated to discuss this because if the dollar were to move, we would really have to factor in what was the cause, what was the shock, what else is happening, have there been changes in risk spreads that are reflected in other asset prices. So what I'm saying is a very partial analysis that's not um, taking account of what's the full-blown scenario, but um, a depreciation of the dollar that simultaneously had some direct impact on inflation and also stimulated aggregate demand would appear to call for a response of tighter policy. But as a one-shot matter on the direct inflation through import channel, you know, again, I would see this as a transitory phenomenon that as long as inflation expectations were, were well anchored to price stability, um, would have at most a one-shot impact on core inflation. And I think it's, I think it's fair to say that um, the empirical work we and others have done suggests that movements in import prices, whether it's energy or other import prices, um, these one-shot shocks really have had very limited, almost no discernible um, pass-through into core inflation since the mid-80s, very, very different than in the 70s when inflation expectations weren't well anchored. And in a way, that has enabled the Fed, I think, over the last decade or so to actually respond less to uh, supply shocks, monetary policy has responded less to supply shocks um, precisely because it's been less necessary to do so because inflation expectations have been well anchored. Thank you, Jack. Thank you very much. Well, we spent the day talking about the uh, prospective future roles of the euro and the dollar and global imbalances. And again, I'd like to thank Janet for bringing the conversation back to offer her insights into the implications for monetary policy decision makers of the globalization that we were uh, focusing on earlier in the day. Again, I'd like to, uh, in addition to thanking Janet, thank all the, the authors and the discussants and the panelists and all of you who participated in the discussions today. I hope uh, all of you found it interesting. I, I know I certainly did. And again, thank you for joining us for this event. So can we have another final round of applause for the participants, the audience, and paper, paper presenters, and Janet. So. <laughs>